Good morning again. You guys excited to get back into First Peter? Okay. I might be a little more excited than that, but I'm excited to get in back into First Peter. I've really enjoyed our summer as we've been walking our way through the Psalms, and also just the fact that we've been able to have different speakers, excuse me, walk us through those passages as we've really been encouraged that God is in everyday life. He's interested in our emotions. He's interested in what is going on with us. He's interested in our peaks and valleys. And he walks with us through each of those. And as we go through each of those, the Psalms is one of the places where it's, it's greatly encouraging to us to be able to pull back to center and understand God is a stable refuge, no matter what is going on around us. And one of the things that I really enjoy about getting to study God's word, and, and hopefully you do as well as we walk our way through, is that now we're going to jump from the Psalms to 1 Peter. And guess what? The message is the same. Okay? God is a strong refuge. And as we jump back into where we were going through chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and we start into chapter 2, the focus remains the fact that we can wake up every day of our lives, no matter what is going on, no matter where we're at in our life stage or where we're at in the circumstances that surround us, every single day we can get up and we can be reminded of the same truth. God is our rock and our refuge. No matter what comes our way, no matter what we experience externally or internally, whatever battle we're dealing with, God is our rock and our refuge. As we look at 1 Peter again, I want to remind us that the end of chapter 1, so turn there with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, that the end of this chapter was an encouragement towards us to love each other with a brotherly love, to love each other like family in Christ. And if you didn't get a chance to kind of walk through that first chapter with us, or even if you missed a couple of those, I'd encourage you to go back. You can find them on our app, on our website. Get up to speed because we're going to kind of resonate here for a little while as we walk through chapter two and three and go forward. But chapter one came off of that. And, and if, you don't, if you're not familiar with this, the page or the uh, chapter breaks that are in your Bible, they are not inspired. Okay? So the chapter breaks are not the inspired part, in case you were wondering. Now, the words are inspired by God and good for everything that we need in life. But the chapter breaks are just so we can find where we're talking about, okay? This particular chapter break, going into chapter two, is kind of in a weird spot because verses one through three are directly tied to the previous verses at the end of chapter one. So I want to say, don't, don't think that the author here is God inspires Peter to write. Don't think that he's moving on to a different thought here in chapter two. He's not. It's a continuous walkthrough that he's got us through in chapter one. And we talked specifically about chapter one being focused upon our great salvation. Okay, the salvation of the believer. This book also will continue to go forward, Peter's letter here, and talks about the submission of the believer and the suffering of the believer. But the salvation of the believer is what carries you through each of those. And we have to be up to speed on that. We have to be well-versed. We have to go back and remind ourselves of our great salvation. Chapter one, walk that through. And as we got towards the end of chapter one, as Judy just read for us a few minutes ago, verse 22, I want to read them again because it's never enough to just read it once. We're going to go back. So look at verse 22 of chapter one with me. 
says, having purified your souls to obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So remember, the focus that Peter's giving us here is that the word of God is living. It is active in our lives. It is the way that he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, as he reveals truth to us, he shows us more and more of who he is and what he's called us to do. The living and abiding word of God. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So let's stop there right at the end of verse one, because this is directly linked to the fact that Peter has been building for us an understanding of God's great salvation and God's living and abiding word that works us through our salvation and helps us know how to live in life. So we've spent some time in the Psalms and some of the Psalms were instructive and some of the ones we looked at were celebratory and some were even mournful and in time for times of trial. But this particular passage, as we get into the beginning of chapter two, is a very direct challenge. It is a call to live a particular way and to not live in a particular way. And what's helpful, I think, that God does for us, and, and maybe you're like me, it, it's always easier when God just directly tells me something. Right? Is that easier for you? I've asked God to just, you know, I've been praying about something and something you, you don't, can't get clarity on. You pray about it for days or weeks even, and you keep praying on it. And I've asked God, I'm like, can you just shoot me an email or something? I'm having a hard time deciphering what you're telling me here. Okay, like you don't even have to include your return address. I won't spam you, okay? Just an email would be helpful. It'd be really clear, okay? When those moments when God is just super clear with us about what he's calling us to do and how he's telling us and commanding us to live, I find those places in scripture very helpful. Easy? No, not easy. Not always comfortable, but very helpful. And that's what we see here in this first verse of chapter two. God is giving clarity to what it looks like to do what he's called us to do at the end of chapter one. He called us at the end of chapter one to live amongst each other with the brotherly love that comes from him. And the way that we live with brotherly and sisterly love, family love together in the family of God is we have to know what not to do and what to do. God clearly gives us that here in verse one. So this might be challenging to you. And what I'm going to ask you to do for this morning, you might think, well, we're only covering three verses and it's only like two sentences. Well, here's why, folks. These couple sentences are not easy. These are very difficult. And the list that goes into verse one here is what kills brotherly and sisterly love. It's what will completely take out 
the power of God and the Holy Spirit from his church if we're active in these things that are in verse one because he's clearly told us not to be. God does it because he's a good and gracious God. He lovingly calls us to do something and then he lovingly warns us of what will stop it dead in its tracks. And that's what this first verse is. So today, what I'm gonna ask you to do is before you start into these, before we start digging through this list in verse one, I'm gonna ask you to do something. You're gonna have to protect yourself from thinking of other people that they apply to. Okay? So I just wanna start there, okay? So when you hear this stuff and God tells you, don't do this, don't do that, I, I know you. I may not know you personally, but I know enough to know this. There's gonna be somebody in the back of your head. Oh, they really needed that verse. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad he said that. Okay? Okay, don't do that, all right? Take these encouragements, commands, even this challenge from the Lord and apply it to your own heart. Don't start out there, okay? Now I know and you know that somebody else needs to hear it too. But here's the reality, so do you and so do I. So let's be real careful here as we enter into God's word to let God's word speak to us. And not just be something that we want to use to speak to somebody else. So that was my, that's my initial warning as we go into this. Because there is nothing worse for the Christian than to constantly think that God is correcting somebody else. It breeds pride. And pride will kill everything that God wants to do. So let's be humble this morning. That's my prayer. That's what I've been praying as, we've, as I've been getting ready to get into this word with you this morning. And I pray that it's a place where you could even just pause right now and just ask the Lord, show me what it is you have for me and help focus in on that. We're going to revisit that later as we work this through. Verse one, he goes into this list. <clears throat> he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. You may think, okay, that's a list. Let's move on. We're going to pull them apart, folks. These are specific. God doesn't mix words with us. They're not all the same thing either. So what is he saying when he says, put away all malice? Malice is defined as hostility. Put away any kind of hostility or wickedness. That's the definition of malice. And in our hearts, that happens when people oppose us or people have a different opinion than us or people call us to account on something, right? We used to have this, I used to have this saying, I had a group of guys that we came out of Bible college and we're doing, you know, accountability together. And, and uh, eventually when you're in accountability with people and they're really in your life, they really know you and they know what your struggles are and you're kind of walking that through, eventually you kind of get this, like, accountability is really great until somebody applies it to you. Right? And then it's just hard. But hard is good in God's economy because it refines us. What is this idea of malice, hostility? Folks, if we are not careful, this world will seep into the church, and the hostility that exists in almost every environment out there 
will be present here too. And that is not honoring to the Lord. The hostility that we live with and all the other environments that we have to embark in or that God has sent us into in this world, there is hostility, there is tension. And I know probably each generation kind of says this as they get older, but I feel like it's even more now than, than in previous years. There's a hostility towards anyone that doesn't say or think exactly what you want them to say or think. That's how the world works. How does the church work? What does it look like to be in the empowered people of God and not have hostility towards one another? It means that we have to be able to provide grace towards each other. When people make mistakes or when people disagree with you, know that you are not the infallible one, okay? You may at one point or two in your life be wrong. So that's okay. Is that amen towards me? I don't know. Okay. It's difficult to stop and understand how much grace God wants us to have for each other. And when we struggle with grace towards each other, it's because we are not reminding ourselves of how much grace we've received. You've heard the saying, you can't outgive God. Well, you can't outgive God, but you also can't outgrace God. Malice is the opposite of grace. Grace is the ability to see someone for who God sees them to be and apply how he sees them to your own heart and try to see them that way as well. The opposite of that is malice. It's hostility. It's the idea that if somebody doesn't see the world the way I do, that they are just completely wrong in every way. Well, you and I are not the standard bearers on how to see the world. God is. His word is. And as we adhere to God's word, malice is not part of how he deals with us. Therefore, we shouldn't deal with each other in that way either. You might say, Pastor Rob, that's fine. I'm not very hostile. I haven't acted in hostility. Okay, acting in hostility is one thing. Living in hostility is another. Jesus continually challenged, not only his disciples, but everyone else who would listen that as you do it in your heart, it's as if you've already done it. You don't have to act on everything for it to be wrong. So some of us have to actually stop and consider the fact that we have allowed some hostility to creep in. Some unnecessary, ungodly judgment to creep in. And repent of that. Because it will not allow you to live in brotherly and family kind of love towards each other. Put away all malice and all deceit. Deceit's definition is this. Deceit means using devious words or actions to get what we want. Do you hear that? 
using devious words or actions to get what we want. See, deceit is different than just outright lying to someone verbally. This actually is applied to manipulating things. Getting what we want by, you know, making it so that it happens. And being manipulative of those around us. Using words or actions to deviously get what we want. This is a difficult one. Because in each of us, because we still live in the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, in each of us, there is this pull to want what we want. And most of the time, what we want, we get kind of confused with what we need. And wants are not needs. But sometimes we live like they are and we treat the world and others like they are. If we're going to live in brotherly love that's brought to us in verses 22 through the end of chapter one, we're going to actually have to think about how we are dealing with each other in different situations. Are we dealing in integrity? Is our character godly? Or are we trying to manipulate scenarios to get the direction we want to get? If you're anything like me, you may function this way. I prefer for someone to be black and white with me. Tell me exactly what you're thinking. As soon as I feel like someone's trying to get me to do something, when they could have just told me what they were really thinking up front, I, I, my flesh gets all reared up, right? I all of a sudden, it may even be a good idea. I'm probably not going to do it. It may be even something that I want to do. But if I feel like you're manipulating me, I'm not going to do it. Because that's how our flesh works. So how do we handle each other with brotherly and sisterly love as a family of God? We deal in integrity and honesty. Openness. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Allow grace to be strewn all through it so that while you're talking and living life and moving through life and church life and ministry together, people don't feel like you're manipulating them. So put away all malice, put away all deceit and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is hiding who we truly are. Namely, hiding our malice and our deceit. Okay? So here's where we actually apply what I said at the beginning. In the back of your mind, that person you're thinking about that really needs to hear this sermon, insert your name. Because this is what we all need. We need to be called to account before we get haughty and prideful and think that it's not our sin that God's trying to deal with. It is. Because if we all keep track of our own lives and seek to live the way that God's calling us to and putting off all the things he's calling us to put off, guess what? We don't have to worry about thinking about each other doing it. Take care of your own house first. Ask the Lord, where is it that I'm hiding some of this stuff? You may have initially thought, I don't really struggle with malice or deceit. Maybe take another look. 
If the Lord's convicting you of that, don't, don't deal in hypocrisy and say, no, that's not me. Deal in integrity and say, okay, Lord, I can deal with that. You know why? Because we've got a little saying on the wall over here. You are more broken and sinful than you would ever believe, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever imagine. God's not afraid of you being real about your sin. He sent his son to the cross so that you could be real about your sin. So let's deal with it in integrity. Let's confess the things that God's trying to bring out of our hearts. Let's repent and turn away from them so that we can do what he's called us to do. Because when we deal with our sin rightly and we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, he empowers us to live out what he's called us to do. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy. What is envy? This is brutal in our world today. Envy. Discontentment from wanting what others have. That's what envy is. Discontentment from wanting what others have. This is hard because we live in a world that creates discontentment in order to drive everything. The world wants you to think you don't have what you need and you deserve better. God tells us Jesus is what you need and you already have him. So contentment is holiness. Discontentment and envy is sin. It's not a problem. So let's, let's, I want to make sure we're clear about words here. Sometimes the word sin is scary, but if we understand the gospel and we know what Jesus has done for us, the word sin is not as scary as it used to be. So wanting what someone else has or being discontent with what God has given you is not just having a bad day, it's actually sin. So let's confess and repent of it and move away, not just try to tamp it down so it doesn't prop its head up anymore. There's this book that whenever I think about envy and discontentment and the opposite of that being holiness and contentment in Christ, there's an old book that you can't read this if you're having a bad week. So I'm going to suggest a book. I'm going to name a book, but make sure you're in a good spot. Maybe come talk to me before you actually try reading it. It's by John Owen, okay? And it's The Mortification of Sin. Anybody ever seen this book? Okay. Heavy book. Hard. Really, really good. Solid theologically. It's very in your face about understanding your brokenness. Don't read it when you're having a bad week. Okay? So hold on to it for a better week. But whenever I think about this idea of discontentment versus contentment, I go back to some things that John Owen says in there. And one of the things is this, that when you are living discontent, you're essentially telling God right then, you're not good enough for me. God, you're not good enough. What you've given me is not good enough. What you're doing in my life isn't good enough. What Jesus went to the cross for is not good enough. I need something more. See, envy is essentially looking at God and saying, I need more than you. Contentment is stopping and saying, God, you're all I need. You're all I need. 
And since you've already given me all I need, I'm good. Lastly, it says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What is slander defined as? Slander is defined as words that lead to damaging another's reputation, tearing down others. Any words that come out of your mouth that actually would damage another person's reputation in the eyes of the person you're speaking to. That's slander in God's eyes. That's the definition of it. So how do we combat that? We have to allow, as scripture has called us, to allow our speech to be seasoned with salt, to be seasoned with grace. So that when people listen to us talk, they are encouraged. They're not only encouraged by what you're saying, they're encouraged about who you're talking about. They're encouraged about how you view those around you. They're encouraged about how you view those that aren't in the room at the time. Because that's the opposite of slander, is speech that's seasoned with grace, bringing good and encouragement to the hearer. So, while you may have been thinking we're only covering three short verses and two sentences, we've only covered one so far. Because there's a lot in here for us, folks. But by God's grace, he tells us directly so that we can do what he's asked us to do previously. Living in brotherly love with each other. So, verse 2. There is this constant transaction that happens throughout Scripture when God tells us about the spiritual life. The process of the word, theological word would be sanctification, but growing in spiritual maturity to be more and more like God. Living more and more the way Christ has asked us to. It's putting off certain things and putting on certain things. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us with just saying, get rid of things, get rid of things, get rid of things, stop doing, stop doing. Because spiritual growth does not happen if you exist in a vacuum. If you place yourself in a vacuum, the problem is you're still there. Which tells each of us sin is actually our problem, not our circumstances. In order to grow in Christ, we have to put off certain things, but we also have to put on certain things. If you're struggling to grow in your spiritual life and you're up against a wall, you feel like you're not going anywhere right now, this is one truth that may be helpful for you. I found it continually helpful for me and for those that I talk with or counsel with is in order to put off sin effectively and for the long term, when you put it off, you have to replace it with something that God has called you to do. So put off and put on. First Peter chapter three, if you may be in your Bible, just right across the other page, but I'm gonna read verses 10 through 12 in First Peter three. And we'll see this transaction continually going. Chapter 10 and verse three, or chapter three, verse 10. says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, God in his loving kindness, whenever he tells us to stop doing something, he tells us what to start doing. Put away evil, put off sin, control your tongue, and do good, seek peace, pursue it. Oftentimes we find ourselves caught in sin patterns because we're sitting around not doing the things God calls us to do. God didn't send his son to the cross, rise him from the dead, and then empower his church with the Holy Spirit so that we could all sit around and wait for him to come back. That's not what he did. He set his son to the cross, he rose him from the dead, and he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his church so that we could be about the good works that he has laid out for us. And when you are busy doing what God wants you to do continually and you're keeping your attention focused on that, you don't have time to do the wrong stuff. You don't have all that free time you're trying to fill, right? The old saying, right? Idle time is the devil's workshop. Might sound like just an old saying. It's true. So instead of just saying, I've got to stop letting my heart go to malice. I got to stop being manipulative or deceitful. I have to stop being hypocritical. I have to stop with the envy. I have to put away the slander and stopping there. Affirm those things, repent of those things, and then put on what God's called you to put on. Which is where verse two takes us. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. What is it that God has called us to long for? The picture here is like a newborn baby for pure milk. We have four children. I watched them all when they were little, when they were inconsolable or when they were hungry. And mom wasn't around to help them with that. There was zero I could do to help. Okay? My only alternative was, I'm a rather large person. I'm always hot all the time. So I could find a way to put kids to sleep. So that's what I would do. And sometimes it was put them to sleep and they weren't supposed to be sleeping, right? And other times it was put them to sleep and it was good. But that was all I had. I didn't have anything else for them. And when there is a baby that is hungry, there is nothing else that's going to take care of that for that baby. Why does God use that analogy here as he talks about putting off sin and growing in our spiritual lives? Because we are to long for the word of God, his instruction for us, the living word, the, the water that satisfies, the, that moves us forward, instructs us in living in him. We're to long for it like a newborn baby for milk. When you can try to distract that baby or play with that baby or give that baby a toy and they're gonna look at you with angst. Get away from me. I want one thing. I want to eat. That's it. Now, some of us may still act like that, right? <laughs> Have you ever been hangry? Right? That old saying, the 
When you're hungry, you get angry, you don't want anything else, there's nothing. That can, okay, hopefully we don't as adults, okay? So that's part of growing up just physically and understanding social graces. But spiritually, the call is to long for God's word, the living, abiding word of God, right? Look back to verse 23. We have been given the living, abiding word of God. Jesus, him setting us free from sin, alive in Christ, empowering us through the Holy Spirit to make sense of God's word. When's the last time you woke up in the morning and said, I can't do anything else today unless I get some of God's word? I shouldn't do anything else. I shouldn't go anywhere. I, I, I need God's word that much. I need the Lord to speak to me or I can't do anything else. That's the picture here. Newborn infant, milk. Nothing else will take care of it. Spiritual life for the Christian, the word of God and his instruction. Nothing else will take care of life for you. Nothing else will let you put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Nothing else will help you with that apart from God's pure instruction, and care for you. So you're not going to grow as a Christian and never read God's word. It just doesn't work like that. I've seen lots of people try, and it hasn't worked. So like newborn babes, infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. Verse 3, if indeed... You have tasted that the Lord is good. So what is the hard question here? If you don't have a desire for God's word, you need to ask yourself if you've actually tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. No doubt Peter was meditating on this as he challenges the people here and challenges us today. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If you are in Christ, if you've been made new by the power of the gospel, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and he's changed you. If that is true about you, there should be a desire to be part of what he's doing, to be immersed in his word to learn more about what he has for you. The tough question here, the very hard question is, if you have no desire for God's word, you need to ask yourself if you have tasted and seen that he is good. And I don't want people walking around doubting their salvation. That's not what the point is. But the point is, when you ask that hard question, the answer is, no, I have seen that God is good. I have tasted and seen. He is good. I may not see it today. I might not feel like it right now, but he is good. See, if you don't ask the hard questions, you won't have to answer them. If you're willing to ask the hard questions of yourself, God will be faithful. He will be your rock and your refuge. He will remind you of who he is and what he's done for you. And the fact that he is good. So he's better than malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander. He's better than your discontentment. He's better than 
wanting what other people have. God is better than that. So we can stop and ask ourselves, have we tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And if you have, you're reminded that everything else that you get distracted with in this world pales in comparison to living for him. Then, if we get to the end of chapter three, or the end of verse three, see, here's where I think probably a more inspired chapter break would fall. Okay, I'm not saying they got it wrong. I'm just saying. These three verses connect deeply to living the way that God's asked us to live. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to put those things aside? Are we willing to repent well? And as Christians, long for the things of the Lord. So as we close and as we pray today, I'm going to ask the Lord to do something for us. And what I'm going to ask him to do for us is, is in a minute, we're going to close our eyes to just take a moment. And I'm going to ask the Lord to convict us of what we need to be convicted of so that we can once again be reminded that we have tasted and seen that he is good. And we can repent because in repentance, there is freedom. Freedom to live the way that he's asked us to live, the way he's called us to live, the way he's empowered us to live through the Holy Spirit, the way he instructs us to live through his word. So before we pray and before we ask for the Lord to convict our hearts and lead us to repentance, I'm gonna ask to encourage our hearts. So I'm gonna ask you to respond here in a second. If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, in a second here, I'm gonna ask you, and I wanna hear a good amen. Not just Cliff, everybody, okay? So if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, can we all say amen? amen.